Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello. This week, we're on the historical Waterloo battlefield, where veterans of modern wars, many of them with disabilities and mental scars, are joining archaeologists to excavate remains of one of the most important conflicts in European history. We'll find out later what they've been uncovering. Coming up first, though, this week's science news, including signs that an anti-obesity pill might be on the scientific menu and the space probe that's heading for the hottest part of the sun. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, first this week, fuelled by cheap calories and sugar-saturated treats and drinks that are far too tempting to resist, the world finds itself in a grip of an obesity epidemic, with over a third of the human race now overweight. Carrying excess weight is a major risk factor for a range of disorders, including diabetes, high blood pressure, heart attacks, strokes and joint problems. And given the rate at which the problem is growing, advice about healthy eating and calorie control is clearly not working. But might it be possible to produce an anti-obesity pill that can control how the intestine absorbs calories? Scientists in America have uncovered a system at work in the gut that can slam the door shut to fat uptake. Sam Virtue from the Metabolic Research Laboratories in Cambridge University has been taking a look at the study for me. If you eat fat pieces of fat come into a specialised cell called an enterocyte and the enterocyte rebuilds the fat and exports them into ball-like objects called chylomicrons. These then exit the other side of the enterocyte away from the gut and go into these small tubules called lacteals. And once they're in those lacteals, they're into the body and they're then able to get into the bloodstream and so on. So that's the sort of gateway into the body, isn't it? Yeah, so it's the gateway into a second circulatory system in the body called the lymphatic system. You may have heard of lymph nodes, and when you hear people saying, oh, my glands are swollen, that's because the lymphs are swollen. They have an important role in our immune system, but they also carry a milky white substance called chyle around the body, which includes all of these fats we absorb from our intestines. And how have they looked at that transmission process between the cells lining the gut and those lacteals? They've looked at a molecule which is called VEGF-alpha. And VEGF-alpha is a molecule that we have known for ages is very important for controlling how your body makes new blood vessels. It also turns out it now has important roles in controlling this other circulatory system, the lymphatic system, and how those knit together. And so what they've done is they've deleted two genes that negatively regulate VEGF-alpha to make it more powerful and work better. And they found something really quite cool, which is that these little balls of fat normally get into the lacteals and the lymphatic system through gaps between cells in these lacteals because the cells are not very closely or tightly knitted together. In fact, the junctions are described as a bit like buttons. And in fact, if you think about the fly on a pair of trousers, you could slot something between the buttons and the fly. Remarkably, when you add VEGF alpha, they turn into structures that look like zippers and you cannot shove something through the gaps in a zip. Effectively, it closes the gateway. It's locking up the cells tightly together so that they can't export these balls of fat 
into those tubes that would then carry them around the body. That is exactly the case. And because they can't export them, the fat that should be absorbed remains in the gut and is actually excreted in the faeces. And if you feed animals a diet that would make a normal mouse become obese, one would presuppose then that these animals don't gain weight. Is that what happens? And that is exactly what happens. The animals are normal on a low-fat diet, but when you give them a tastier, higher-fat diet, something more akin to a McDonald's or a Burger King, the normal mice enjoy it and get much fatter, whereas the mice with these tight zippers that prevent the fat going into their bodies cannot get fatter and remain pretty much normal weight. We do depend on fat absorption for some really quite critical processes, though, don't we? There are fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, E, K. So if we clog up this process, is there not a risk we could end up very deficient in some really quite important factors? Absolutely. And there will be a need for further follow-up to see how practical this is and safe this will be if it's ever to go forward as a treatment there may also be impacts on other aspects of gastrointestinal health does it affect other nutrient absorption also does it have effects on the microbiome of our guts and could this have other negative impacts but it's certainly a promising avenue for future research and talking about that future research would the grand vision then be you could turn this on or off a bit to just tip the balance so you could still enjoy a few extra helpings of trifle and you wouldn't pay the price with your waistline later. Yeah, and I think that there are other aspects about this which make it quite interesting, is that within the paper itself, they do have a pharmacological inhibitor of this process. But one of the striking things they show is that physiologically, just in a normal gut, this process can happen very rapidly and be very rapidly regulated. And why the body has the ability to suddenly shut off lipid absorption is one of the most interesting things. And generally, if you're doing something that modulates something that the body normally does, and you can do it a bit, it's often a healthier approach than something that's really kind of alien if you're looking to try and generate a treatment. So you could literally pop a pill with a bad-for-you lunch. If you're going to really be naughty and pig out, you could pop a pill and temporarily disable the system just for lunchtime and then return to full virtuousness by dinner time. So that's conceptually the case, but let's just remember where the fat from that naughty lunch would go. So one of the side effects that you have to worry about with this kind of treatment is a unpleasant sounding thing called steatorrhea, which is actually about as unpleasant as it sounds. It's oily poos. So you would have to decide what you want to do with regards to your lunch. That was Cambridge University's Sam Virtue, and he was commenting on the paper in the journal Science by Anne Eichmann and her team at Yale University who made that discovery. Now, estimates vary, but we think that an ant can lift between 10 and 50 times its own body weight. And for a human, the equivalent would be your eye being able to pick up a truck. But now it seems on the subject of trucks that the car manufacturer Ford is seeking to take a leaf out of a perhaps leaf cutter ant's book. And they're equipping staff on their production lines with wearable exoskeleton suits to help them with lifting and reaching. So is this the future? We're here to share his wisdom on this and other stories from the world of technology is business angel investor Peter Cowley. Peter, what actually is an exoskeleton, first and foremost? Yes, hello there, Chris. So an exoskeleton is a skeleton outside the body. And so examples of those are crabs, cockroaches. Human beings, of course, have got endoskeletons. Our skeletons are inside us. The point about an exoskeleton is to assist the uh, movement of limbs, so whether those arms or legs, in order to either replace that limb or to improve the ability to do something. And this example with Ford is for workers who are possibly working above their head height underneath the chassis of a car tightening up nuts and bolts, which is really hard. If you can imagine eight hours with something in your hand, which might only weigh a kilo or two, it's going to be really difficult. A lot of strain on both your arms and your shoulders. How does it work then? Just describe what it looks like, this exoskeleton. Is it like an exosuit that you would step into and you, you've got a wearable robot, effectively, on the outside of you? That a, supports a good, a good question, yes. In fact, yes, the, they are working on those sort of things, and the military particularly working on these, but these ones that Ford have got from a company somewhere in the States are actually really small. They're only four kilos. They mount on your shoulders and around your waist, and they provide a relatively small amount of lift, only adding two to seven kilos, which is still quite a bit, but compared with your normal arm. So How are they powered, then? 
they're powered with springs. So it's spring assistance here. The big ones you mentioned before are powered with, in one case, a little internal combustion engine, so a little petrol engine on there, and batteries and things. And they're huge, and they can weigh 100 kilos on top of your own body weight. So it's almost like an external angle poise lamp that you've Absolutely. got strapped to your arm, but it means that sustaining a position or a posture for an extended period of time, you've got that extra bit of support it's a bit that makes more it easier. It's a bit more than angle poise because it will actually assist you with lifting as well. It won't just stay in position as the microphone in front of you is. It will actually allow you to, to push up as but well. But there is no such thing in physics as a free lunch, so you can't get a push for nothing. So if it's sprung-loaded, the energy must be supplied by the wearer to move it. Well, it's actually redistributed around your body, I think, rather than just in your arm. So it's your shoulders and the rest of your body is actually helping with that assistance. And what do the workers say? Is it going down well? Uh, well, there were some prototypes out for some time. I'm just taking this, of course, from the internet. And they've disordered 75 sets of these in order to go out throughout factories around the world. They're not cheap, though, because they're low volume. So they're talking about $6,000 for each one. And this is something without any batteries, without any power, without any computing power, etc. But they must have done some kind of cost-benefit analysis and worked out that six thousand well spent they must think they're going to get that back in terms of productivity or fewer lawsuits because someone gets repetitive strain injury type things on the production exactly yeah so i don't think it'll be productivity because i think the line will still move at the same speed but it will be in terms of uh, injury to the you know strain injury and people being off work and potentially lawsuits and what about um, extrapolating this to people who have disabilities weakness or other kinds of problems that mean something like this might help them yeah this comes back to what you've just said is that a spring-loaded device won't do that you need something that's actually got its own power so there are a number of exoskeletons been experimented with and sold around the world particularly in Japan for the aged this is for example might be that a nurse needs to lift a patient regularly and move them around you can't easily do that if you're a small lady nurse perhaps then how are you going to lift 70 kilos or something so they can do that with these suits on Now, in other news, you mentioned to me that you have been looking at some technology that you're thinking of investing in. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I'm a very, very active angel investor. I've invested in over 60 startups, some of which have failed and some some have actually exited for a good good amount of return. And the one that I mentioned earlier on is actually coming out of the University of the Engineering Department, the University of Cambridge here in, in, in Cambridge. And the concept is if you have a cylinder of gas uh, at a certain pressure, you've got a certain amount of gas in there. If you add something called a metal oxide framework, which I'll come to in a moment, you can actually increase the amount of gas in there, the volume of gas in there at the same pressure, which doesn't seem to make much sense in principle because you've got more material in there in the same volume at the same pressure, but more. And this metal oxide framework is a structure which allows the atoms of the gas, not a liquid, of the gas to be pulled into place such they're not knocking into other atoms and therefore you can get more of them in the same volume people talk of these as a bit like a molecular sieve don't they you you can imagine chicken wire at the molecular scale where where the wires link together you would have atoms of different types and it gives specific properties so you can have different gauges of your chicken wire and you can have different chemical properties so in this context where you're saying you can use this to store gas presumably they're choosing atoms that lock onto the gas you want to put into the cylinder very tightly and enable it to, to, to bond onto the walls. That's right. So the framework size will be tuned to the type of... So if you've got a, a single, say, hydrogen atom, which is probably not useful, they're minute. But if you've got a complex uh, you know, acetylene or something, which is very much longer, you'll need larger pockets for these molecules to sit in. And why is this a good thing? Does this mean what we can get more gas into the cylinder so we need to spend less money on very dense, thick cylinders so you can have the gas at lower pressure? I mean, what What's the reason for this technology? Yes, that's part of it. So you can actually, at the same pressure, you can have the same uh, thickness of wall, so you don't have to increase the pressure. But it's more to do with transport. It's to do with the fact you can transport around more gas. Now, there's two ends of the spectrum. One end is, amazingly, is ships. So you imagine there's a lot of natural gas which isn't liquefied that's transported around the world. If you can suddenly get, and the numbers they're talking about are 14 times. If you can get 14 times more gas in a ship, that makes a huge difference, doesn't it, in terms of cost? And at the other end is bottles, say, of something used in hospitals where you don't have to replace the cylinder that often. Certainly sounds like an exciting prospect. Peter, thank you for joining us to talk about it. Peter Cowley there, whom you can also catch talking about business and entrepreneurship in his Invested Investor podcast. Look him up. Got a biological brain buster or a chemical query? Ask the Naked Scientists. I just wanted to know about sleep paralysis. Is it a disorder or condition and can it be cured? How much energy is in moonlight? And could solar panel technology be used to capture this energy? 
when you cook food with any alcohol, how much, if any, percentage of the alcohol stays behind? Every Friday, The Naked Scientist and Cape Talk unravel the science behind those weird and wonderful questions you've always wanted to ask. Download and listen for free at thenakedscientist.com slash ask or simply search and subscribe to Ask the Naked Scientist on your favourite podcast app. Still to come here on The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, a look at battlefield archaeology and we're also asking what's stopping animals from speaking And how did we evolve to do it in the first place? Before that, though, a very special spacecraft has just begun an extraordinary journey through the sun's corona, that's its outer atmosphere. The Parker Solar Probe, after a few false starts, ultimately lifted off on August the 12th, and its mission is to solve the mystery of why the hottest part of our star isn't its surface. Katie Haler has been finding out more about it. On the 11th of August, 2018, the Parker Solar Probe, 60 years in the making, older than NASA itself, is set to launch from Cape Canaveral in Florida. It's quite a small craft. Imagine a hexagonal compartment, about one by one and a half metres, that's the main body where most of the scientific kit is housed. About one and a half metres above is the heat shield. It is made of a carbon-carbon composite. It's very similar to a graphite epoxy that you might find in um, golf clubs or a nice tennis racket. And it's a sandwich structure. There are two very thin face sheets and then there's about four and a half inches of a carbon-carbon foam, about 97% air when it's here on Earth. And then on the very front surface of that, we had a plasma sprayed alumina coating that actually reflects most of the sunlight. The front side of the heat shield will get to about 1400 degrees Celsius. But the instruments on the main body of the spacecraft, just a little bit above room temperature. The mission's project scientist, Nikki Fox. So, equipped with this rather impressive shield, once in space, the probe will journey through the solar system using gravity assists from Venus to do a series of flybys through the sun's corona across the seven years of the mission, focusing its orbit closer and closer to the sun, getting to, at its closest point, a mere 3.8 million miles above the sun's surface. This probe will get closer than ever before to our sun and will hopefully, survive long enough to beam back data to us here on Earth. So why attempt something so daring? Well, there are a few mysteries about the corona that have been bothering scientists for decades. First up, the corona itself is about 300 times hotter than the surface of the sun, despite being further away from the heat source, which is rather puzzling. The other mystery is why it is accelerated so fast in this region. So where you see this incredible heating, the plasma itself gets energised and it does accelerate away from the sun at supersonic speeds out and bathing all of the planets. It carries with it the sun's magnetic field. So the sun is rotating and the magnetic field of the sun is rotating with the sun and all of that material is kind of stuck on those magnetic field lines. Where the plasma gets super energized, it is so energetic that it actually grabs the magnetic field of the sun and pulls it away from the sun with it as it streams out towards the edge of our solar system. The Earth has a magnetic field and those two fields can interact when the solar wind arrives at the Earth and cause large scale changes and it can lead to big space weather events. And by going and making these measurements in this region, it will finally enable us to put the physics behind the drivers of the solar wind, the stuff that is coming and impacting our planet. And it will make transformational improvements in our ability to predict the impact that the sun has on our Earth every day. So what kind of equipment is on board this probe, which is going to capture the information needed to answer these questions? So I mentioned the magnetic field as being something that's changing. So we carry three magnetometers with us to make sure that we cover the full frequency range. Where there's a magnetic field that's changing, there's an electric field that's changing. So we carry antennas on the spacecraft and they will also measure 
plasma waves. And so when you have all these particles moving around, they generate waves. And the characteristic wave uh, will tell us a lot about the physics that is going on. If we see one type of wave, we know it's likely to be one type of physics, etc. The probe will also capture some key characteristics of the continually streaming solar wind. Things like speed, temperature, composition and density. So scientists can learn more about the plasma close to the sun. And then we also carry high energy particle detectors with us that measure those very high energy particles associated with those transients. So the flares, coronal mass ejection shocks in the solar wind. And then last but not least, we have a white light imager that is taking images of essentially the solar wind right in front of the spacecraft. So what the spacecraft is about to plow through, that will help us to put into context all of these wonderful in situ measurements that we're making with the rest of the payload. There are big expectations for this little craft. I asked Nikki about what challenges lay in store. We do have to worry, of course, about the heat, the dust. We have to keep our solar panels cool. Another really huge challenge, it takes light eight minutes to get from the sun to the earth. So there's no way we can joystick this mission. If anything goes wrong, she is totally programmed to figure out what it is that is going wrong and fix it on orbit. You're sending a spacecraft into this very challenging environment and she's very, very small, but she's very independent. It's an amazing team that we have that have really put her through her paces. And, you know, it is rather like sending your kid to college. You do the best you can, you bring them up and then you send them out into the world and you just hope that they can take care of themselves. Nikki Fox there from the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab. Now here on the radio, of course, we certainly enjoy talking and a new piece of research this week has revealed the parts of the brain that may have been key to this behaviour evolving in the first place. Georgia Mills has been investigating... Who hasn't wanted to confer with cockatoos, banter with antelopes or rabbit on at rabbits? But can any animals talk back? It kind of depends on what we mean by talking. That's Dr Jacob Dunn, Director of the Behavioural Research Group at Anglia Ruskin University. So there are other animals that can mimic speech sounds... Famously, quite a lot of birds do this, like parrots and budgies and so on. They can make lots of different sounds. Whether we think that cognitively they're using language in the same way that we are is a bit of a different question. But certainly they can make complex speech sounds, which sound very much like they're talking. This mimicking has even been seen to some extent in seals, elephants and killer whales. So what about our closest cousins, the primates? Well, this is where it gets really interesting because the apes and the other primates, one would think because they're so closely related to us and do lots of very, very clever things like using tools, one would think that they would have very advanced communication similar to our own. But when it comes to vocal communication, they seem to be really quite limited and they don't use complex vocalizations in any similar way to the ways that we use speech. So something quite distantly related like a parrot can mimic human speech and demand crackers, yet our closest relatives can't, despite the fact that all things point to them having a very similar vocal anatomy. So what's going on? So what people have said for a long time, and in fact Darwin said this, he said perhaps the brain is much more important in this regard. What we went out to do was the first sort of large-scale comparative study looking at non-human primates, which make a range of different sounds, and saying, OK, well, they don't make many different sounds, but there is a variation across different primate species in how many sounds they produce. So we carried out an analysis trying to compare that variation to brain architecture. How did you do that and what did you find? So the brain data came from published data. There are large brain collections in different places around the world and the information about the size of the brain, the weight of the brain, and then the various different structures within the brain are calculated through histology. So what that really means is that you've got, a bit like in the delicatessen in a supermarket, you put your brain through a 
a slicer. You've got lots of very, very thin slices of pastrami. And then you're able to take images of each of these slices and eventually recreate a 3D model of the brain. And crucially, then you don't eat it afterwards. And then you don't eat it <laughs> afterwards. You'd probably get quite sick if you did. So we, we took this data on the size of different structures of the brain across these different primate species and related it to the number of different vocalizations that they produce. What did you find? We found a very strong positive correlation between the number of different sounds that primates produce and the relative size of their cortical association areas. The cortical association areas are important information centres in the brain. They receive the sensory input, and they are a bit like a computer that decides what to do with that. We also went on to look at some other areas of the brain. What we found was that the hypoglossal nucleus, which is this little structure in the brain stem from which the nerve comes out and innovates the tongue was found to be significantly bigger in apes than in other primates as were the cortical association areas so this might tell us a little bit about how through human and hominin evolution we evolved with time to grow smarter brains but also how that might have co-evolved with this particular part of the brain which is innovating the tongue And that might tell us something about how eventually in our primate ancestors we achieved better control over the vocal apparatus as our brain was changing. But forget about finding out the answers to crucial questions on the origins of humanity. When are we going to get talking monkeys? The recent literature, a really great paper came out saying that the monkey vocal tract is speech ready. What they argue is that the vocal tract of the macaque, which they looked at, is capable of moving in all the ways to be able to produce the key vowel sounds, which are important for human speech. And therefore, if we were to stick a human brain on top of a macaque larynx, it ought to be able to speak. Monkey butlers. Exactly. (laughs) And therefore, in the future, who knows exactly how this is all going to play out. But one way or another, there may be new techniques to be able to fiddle around with the brains of (laughs) biomed primates, which I would not uh, be on board with, I have to say, to begin to get them to produce language. Jacob Dunn from Anglia Ruskin University, and that work was out this week in Frontiers in Neuroscience. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories that we've been discussing this week so far... The transcripts, as well as the references to the published work, are all on our website. That's nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Now for the main part of the programme, and the naked scientists are off to Belgium, Georgia Mills. Well, we're walking across the car park, we've got the south gate behind us. Hugemont Farm, just south of Brussels. It's a walled compound containing a chapel and barn, surrounded by farmland. The dry ground is crispy underfoot, and everything is painted yellow in the sun. And, apart from the distant roar of a motorway, it exudes a feeling of peace. But it wasn't always so. So when you look out today, there is no physical evidence of what happened. Mm. Looks as though this place has always been peaceful farmland. That's Tony Pollard, Professor of Conflict History and Archaeology at the University of Glasgow, and he's giving me a tour. But it still gives you a very strong impression Mm. of what this place was like. There are some great photographs from the late 19th century. This farm was a key location in the Battle of Waterloo, a battle between Napoleon's French armies and Allied forces, one led by Wellington, from 200 years ago. It's a battle so recent in archaeological terms, there are even some surviving veterans. Yeah, we've got these three chestnut trees and they're like sentinels standing here on what were the fringes of the wood just before it stopped and then you get the farm. If you look at the, the thick trunks of these trees... You can see holes in them, and if you run a a metal detector over them, you'll get a signal, because they've still got the musket shot in them that they suffered as wounds during the battle. And those trees are not the only veterans here. Tony is out here with Waterloo Uncovered. It's a charity bringing archaeologists and ex-military people together to uncover the secrets of this Napoleonic battle. 
and the charity aims to provide support and training for veteran men and women, some of whom have developed PTSD. I've been hearing some of their stories. Things weren't going right, and I honestly thought, truthfully, I was going mad. I wasn't thinking rationally, I was not a nice person, and things were just going wrong. I wasn't sleeping, I was horrible to my family, and it was wrong. It gave me back an interest in myself, an interest in life in general, a sense of purpose. It like gives you, it's like an injection, you know, it, it's pumping something back into you. So can a battle from 200 years ago help veterans today? That's what I'll be finding out. But first, what exactly is PTSD? Here's Jennifer Weld, consultant clinical psychologist at the University of Oxford. PTSD is a severe stress reaction. It develops after exposure to extreme trauma and it has a number of symptoms. The main uh, symptoms that are quite disabling and troubling are what we call the re-experiencing symptoms. So these are unwanted memories that come back to mind very frequently and are very distressing and take up a lot of attention and disrupt somebody's day. There are also flashbacks, and when flashbacks occur, it can make someone feel as though they're back at the time of the trauma and it's happening all over again. Nightmares are another form of re-experiencing symptoms and memories that wake people up in the middle of the night and are distressing and usually people can't get back to sleep afterwards. The next set of symptoms are the avoidant symptoms. So this is avoiding reminders of the trauma. And the next category of symptoms are negative, what we call negative alterations in cognition and mood. And what that really means are that after trauma, people either develop quite negative beliefs about themselves or they may have had negative beliefs earlier, but these get quite a lot stronger afterwards. So they may feel and believe that they're very worthless, for example. And then the final category of symptoms are the hyperarousal symptoms, so feeling very hyperaroused, difficulty concentrating, difficulty sleeping, feeling very, very on edge. Right, and what kind of a trauma could bring PTSD on? Quite a broad range of trauma can trigger PTSD. A trauma such as a sexual assault, a physical assault, military trauma, bombing, terrorist attacks, the loss of a loved one in traumatic means. Right, and when someone develops PTSD, does a change happen in the brain that we can kind of see? So we know that with trauma, stress hormones are released and they may affect the brain. They may make it difficult for the amygdala, which is our emotion center in the brain, to dampen down an emotional response. So in PTSD, we see this overgeneralized sense of danger. So lots of things feel very dangerous. And this could be because the amygdala, the emotion center of the brain, isn't well dampened down in PTSD. So after trauma, for some people, they'll have a hypersensitive amygdala, which will make it very difficult to feel calm in response to a trauma reminder. How common is PTSD? It's quite a common disorder, and what we call the lifetime prevalence is between 7 and 8%. So 7 or 8% of people will have PTSD at some point in their life. Jennifer Wilde. In the military, those numbers are predictably higher. Some studies have estimated lifetime prevalence of up to 30% in veterans of certain wars. It can make transition from the military into what's commonly dubbed Civvy Street much more challenging. Here's Malcolm Eilif, a sergeant who served in the Coldstream Guards, which was a regiment that actually played a key part in the proceedings at the Battle of Waterloo. Sometimes for being ex-forces, you think you're alone a bit. Um, We all seem to have slight problems. I mean, I know I've got PTSD. It's not the nicest of things. plays havoc with your life. I still can't even hold hands with my wife, for instance, because I can't let my guard down. It's, it is horrible at times. Sometimes being ex-forces, it's a lonely life after you leave. You know, there's ex-forces on the streets, there's ex-forces in prisons, they're in mental homes. And for somebody like myself, I can go months without actually talking to anybody or going out because I feel safe in my own environment. But I feel like now I want to go out and tell people how the experience I've had here, it's so hard to explain when you've actually found something from the period. You know, the history of my regiment, it like gives you, it's like an injection. You know, it's pumping something back into you. 
But just to come to Hugamont for me is a big honour because I'm ex-Coldstream Guards. My battalion was at the gate. One of our sergeants shut the door and I think for any Coldstreamer to come here, you know, it was such a, such a big battle for us. I mean, it must have been a hell of a, hell of a feeling for them. You know, they were surrounded on three sides. There was a firefight going on. But you're doing your job. They have all been doing their job. Yeah, everybody's frightened. If anybody says to you in any interviews they weren't frightened in any conflict, they're lying. You are frightened, but you're doing a job. You've been trained to do a job. They'd have been trained to put their musket balls in the barrels. They'd have been trained to fire back. No different than us changing a magazine on the rifles that I used when I was in. You're doing a job. Your colleague drops next to you if, he, if he's badly injured you try to do something if not you just carry on there's a dead another dead person you've got to carry on and there's always that that saying you know stand stand you know stand your ground stand even in today's warfare they stand and the lads who were here in 1815 would have been exactly the same that they'd have been no different than me Malcolm Eilif there, and he's one of many veterans at Hugemont digging up the past. So how are they doing the archaeology? Back to Tony, who is telling me about their state-of-the-art toad arrays, which can scan the ground for magnetic anomalies. Basically what they, these allow us to do is to look for disturbances under the ground. So if you dig a hole, you will change the local magnetic field. If you light a fire, you will again, create magnetic anomalies. If you dig a hole and backfill it with soil which then becomes wet, its resistance relative to the soil around it will be less. So all of these physical properties can be read and measured and they create a map of disturbance that is invisible on the surface. The thing is, though, you still have to um, do what we call ground-truthing, which is do some old-school archaeology, dig a trench and see what the anomaly actually means. And we're about to do some of that today. We've got two large anomalies just beyond the trees there in that field, which is just to the south of the south gate at Ugamol. And um, we're going to see what they actually relate to. They could be any number of things. Uh, Some of the first anomalies we looked at were brick kilns. They gave up high magnetic readings which suggested burning and indeed they related to the construction of of bricks and those bricks were used to build the farm so we there have the kind of genesis of of Ugamon, which is really exciting and as well as old-fashioned digging they're also using metal detectors as the musket balls weaponry and parts of uniform were often metallic but what we are looking for at least in part, are artefacts, objects that were dropped during the battle. So they may be musket balls that were fired, horseshoes, bits of broken weaponry. Oh, wow. wow, look at that one, eh? Wow. It's fine. These finds end up in the aptly named Finds Room. I'm Hilary Harrison. I am the Finds Officer for Waterloo Uncovered. I have been on every dig that they've had here, so this is now my fifth dig out here. I did two in the first year. Right, you are in, at the moment, what we call the finds room. Everything that comes out of the trenches is brought into here. We then dry it all. We dry clean it so we don't wash anything because the majority of what we get is metallic and you never wash metal anyway. So everything is dry brushed. And there's this uh, big white table in front of us full of uh, mysterious items. So are these the finds that have been coming in? Can you tell me a bit about them? These are the finds that have been coming in. So what we have across here is an awful lot of iron nails, musket balls which have been impacted, so they've actually been fired. Um, Are those the sort of flatter circles? So so we have an impacted one here. Um, if I have a wow, so it's really gone splat, hasn't it? Oh, this one's hit something really solid. I get some of the mud out of the back of it. So that's the sounds of me carefully digging around inside this musket ball to get the mud out of the back of it so we can see what it looks like. So this has gone splat against something, and because of the speed that it's travelling at, and because this is a soft metal, when it goes splat, it doesn't stay flat. If you think of a drop of water hitting something, it hits and then comes back a little bit. And because this is solid, you then get a hollow in the middle and a hollow round the outside where it's gone splat and bounce back. So you can really tell the ones that have hit something. This one, I think, has probably hit a wall because you've got little bits of red in it, so you've got little bits of brick dust in it. 
each musket ball has its own tale to tell. Now, what else have we got here? We've got mysteries on here. I mean, I'm not sure what that is, but it's a little decorative piece. Could be off the end of a rod of some sort. Or like a flagpole. Or a flagpole. It could be off any one of a number of things, but that's sort of a little decorative piece Mm. of some sort. We've got some coins here. Uh, Lots of musket balls. Indeterminate pieces of metal. I think that's a handle. Oh, yeah. That might well be a button. Possibly English, plain. It doesn't weigh very much. The the French ones had bone and wood inside them, so they tend to weigh a little bit more. There's about 100 things just on this table, so there's a lot yes. to get through. Oh, yes, see, we, we will have dealt with over a 1,000 fines, and wow. there's two of us who have got experience in the room. We've got two people who have come in just this week and last week, so they are they're learning and working really hard. We've got Malcolm, who's come in just for today. And he's thoroughly enjoying himself. Yeah? Yeah, I'm finding lots of things. I mean, I've picked lots of these things up with the detectors. Now I'm actually cleaning them and finding out what they are. It's just an absolutely fantastic feeling to know where the dates are, where they've come from and everything else. But there's something that conspicuously has not been found. Over 50,000 people died at Waterloo. We haven't come across any graves. We've not been deliberately hunting graves, but obviously with a battle site, it's an issue. And we have various paintings from the time of bodies being buried here at Hougoumont. And in one instance here in the car park, we investigated the site of one of these paintings. And, and so two years ago, we had a good look here and we got the machine in and we broke out the tarmac. But at the end of a long project, we came up with... A single finger bone. Tony Pollard. So where are all the bodies? Coming up. Here's 40 shillings on the drum For those who volunteer to come To list and fight the foe today Over the hills and far away This week on The Naked Scientist, you're with me, Georgia Mills, and I'm finding out about battlefield archaeology, uncovering the secrets of Waterloo, and working out how something from 200 years ago can help veterans today. So the battle itself, what happened? Napoleon's forces were advancing towards Brussels. Wellington's smaller army had to hold them off, knowing Prussian reinforcements were on their way. The fighting was particularly fierce at Hugemont Farm, with the Allied forces trying to hold off a French onslaught. The field outside the compounds became suitably dubbed the killing zone. Meanwhile, in the surrounding fields, a bloody battle ebbed and flowed throughout the day. Men, horses and artillery collided in a mess of flesh, lead and smoke, and it resulted in the death of over 40,000 people. But these bodies just haven't been found. Back to Tony. There are several theories that could be drawn from that. One is that in the decades following the battle... The mass graves at Waterloo and other battlefields from the Napoleonic era across Europe were actually exploited for the human bone because prior to the modern phosphates industry, bone meal was a very important fertiliser along with things like bird poo. And it was a bit of an industry. So teams would go out scouring these big battlefields and no doubt asking the locals where the big graves were that would be worth their while literally quarrying. And given that this one is represented in a painting, it's highly likely that even 20 years later it would be remembered. And they may well have come here and dug out the bones and shipped them back to Hull in England where they're ground up and spread on the fields. Yeah, unpleasant. These were, these were hard times. The idea that people are coming here and moving those bodies has the evidence is here to suggest that might be the case because we just don't have them. Now, there is another less gruesome theory, and that's that there is a war grave, but it's just somewhere no one's thought to look yet. And the team are keen to emphasise they're not actively looking for human remains. But there are still lots of items telling the story of the battle being unearthed minute by minute. I paid a visit to one of the trenches from inside the compound. Quite exciting, actually. That voice is Paul, who was a soldier for 24 years and is now very well acquainted with an archaeologist trowel. What's that? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's just trying to add to the story, you see. That's what we want to do. 
And as a soldier, I get it. You, you want to add to the soldier's story, the uh, subaltern history, these voices, unheard voices. Are they coming back to, to life again? Well, in my mind, they are. They're coming back to life, and it's giving them that opportunity. Paul himself has suffered from PTSD. Things weren't going right, and I honestly thought, truthfully, I was going mad. I wasn't thinking rationally, I was not a nice person, and things were just going wrong. I wasn't sleeping, I was horrible to my family, and it was wrong. And my wife, she's an intelligent person, she knew that stuff wasn't right, and so I went to combat stress, and it was at combat stress that I actually got a diagnosis. And the sense of relief of being told, actually, Paul, you're not mad. You've actually, you have a mental condition, you have PTSD. And it's quite natural the way that I was reacting to deep, deep trauma. And that was such a relief because you need to almost go all the way down and to be told, actually, there is something wrong, it's not you. It's not you, it's the condition. And once you get that diagnosis, then you can do something about it. And then things do improve. And it's not a quick fix, it's a journey. And I've been on this journey now for over 16 years. And I will continue to go on that journey. Phil, <laughs> there's loads of stuff coming up. Sorry, I'm getting all over it. Hey? <laughs> <laughs> That laugh you can hear is the trench supervisor. Well, I'm Phil, Phil Hardin. Um, I suppose everybody knows me off the telly programme, Time Team. It's Phil's fourth year with Waterloo Uncovered. They ain't sacked me yet. (laughs) (laughs) I sat down with Phil to find out about the importance of his trench inside the compound and to hear about what they'd unearthed. Well, where we're conducting this interview would have been an enormous barn at the time of the Battle of Waterloo. And we know the barn was set fire about three o'clock in the afternoon. And it is a crucial part of the battle. We are as close as we can get to the North Gate. And if you're a Coldstream Guardsman, the North Gate is holy ground. They famously shut the North Gate at the Battle of Waterloo. And is that the gate we're looking at there? That is the, the gate that's there. I mean, it's, not, it's a, a modern reconstruction, of course. But had the French broken in, they could have taken Hougamont Farm. And if Hougamont Farm had fallen, then that would have very, very strongly weakened Wellington's right flank. So the closing of it really was a very, very important part of the battle. One of the great discoveries of what we've been doing is masses and masses of grey slates. Now, the, all, you look at all the reconstructions and they all tend to show red ceramic tiles. And apparently some people even think the barns were thatched. Absolute rubbish, in my humble opinion. <laughs> it, it's a slate roof. And I believe that the whole of Hougamont Farm would have been slate roofed. And that's a brand new, brand new discovery. And what have you found so far? Well, we have exposed vast areas of slates, and they, we believe, are part of that roof that fell in at three o'clock on June the eighteenth, eighteen fifteen. And believe you me, as an archaeologist, if if you can deal with some in spans of fifty years plus or minus, you're probably doing quite well. But when you can actually pinpoint the day. And the actual time, that is something else. Right, so we know that it's hard to think of when we're sitting here, it's very peaceful, it's a like lovely bright sunny day, but this would have been a massive barn in a battle that was on fire and collapsed. That's the awful thing. I mean, it's the, the obvious place for people who were wounded to crawl away for a little bit of a safeguard. And of course, when you're in a building and you watch the roof set fire and you haven't got the the strength or the energy to make it back out to the building and there's smoke everywhere you probably can't even find the doors 
What is it like? You've been doing this project for four years, yeah. but you've done all kinds of archaeology. What is it like working with this uh, team of veterans? Oh, it's great, you know. Um, I mean, I've been an archaeologist all my life. That's what I was put on this planet to be, uh, sadly, I suppose. But it's nice to have a bit of purpose, isn't it, really? You're not in here for, for a short while. You might as well make use of the time. Um, and so I've always wanted to be an archaeologist. And so I've been happy with my life. Um, and I get so sort of blinkered, so narrow-minded about archaeology being the be-all and end-all of it, that it's kind of nice to be able to sit back at times and reflect that actually it can be beneficial, not just in finding stuff and understanding about the past, but actually serving people who are alive now and giving them a break and giving them fresh ideas and fresh insights and all the rest of it. And it, and it's very, very rewarding. And it's really an accolade that archaeology can be one of those things that can help benefit people. I'm a, I'm a dry old stick, you know. I've been doing archaeology a long time now. But I still get a buzz of finding stuff. And, of course, these guys, they're finding stuff for the first time. And they've got, they're getting that buzz that I've had all my life. I'm sure you'd agree. You, you were here when, when, when Paul found that buckle. I mean, there he is. He's a grown man. But he was behaving like a five-year-old school child. <laughs> I was so I was that excited as well. <laughs> yeah, well, you were just be, behaving like a three-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna cut that out of tape. <laughs> no one needs to know that. And the project ideally works two ways, as well as providing therapy. Having people who've seen battle can actually provide unique insights into what might have happened. Tony Pollard again. There's the old phrase: they've seen the elephant. They've been in battle. None of us archaeologists, we've not experienced battle. And to have people here that have been through that incredibly unique process is very rewarding. One example is the walled compounds here. They've stormed walls, they've defended walls, and every now and again one of them will look through the loophole in the wall and go, well... That's too low for me. That field of fire isn't great. And it's just kind of... It makes you step back and draw breath, really, because it is a an amazing connection that reaches out across the centuries to, to the time of the battle. I think we're very privileged to have these people here. But how effective can archaeology really be as a therapy? Back to University of Oxford's Jennifer Wilde, who's not part of Waterloo Uncovered. I asked her more about what we know about treating PTSD. PTSD in and of itself has a natural recovery. So unlike other psychiatric disorders, over time, within a five-year time period, the majority of people will recover from PTSD, so about 60% of people. However, whilst that sounds optimistic, one, it means that 40% of people won't. And two, it means for that five-year period, people are still suffering from their life being turned upside down, their relationships falling apart, being unable to work. So whilst PTSD does have a natural recovery, it is important to offer treatment early on. The best treatment for PTSD is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, which focuses on the trauma and helping the person to pull apart the trauma in a lot of detail and start to think about it differently so that with the help of a therapist, the person can break the link between the past and the present and overcome the, the debilitating symptoms. So using archaeology as a novel form of uh, treating PTSD um, is an exciting idea. So we've been talking about trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, and, and one of the components of that treatment is actually going back to the site of the trauma where it happened. And this is really important because often people have beliefs or a feeling like the site of the trauma is frozen in time and it hasn't changed and it's completely dangerous and overwhelming and I won't be able to cope if I go back. So the therapist would often, as much as possible, go back to the site of the trauma, either in person or if that's not possible because it's happened in another country, by Google Street View. So we would look at it on computer together um, and look at what's different now. And um, often the, the client realizes that the site has moved on and it no longer contains all of the, the dangerous uh, traumatic features that were there when the person went through the trauma. So in terms of veterans uh, using archaeology to help come to terms with 
PTSD as a as a um, as a way forward, this is novel and potentially could be really helpful because um, it's not exactly their trauma site, but there will be reminders of their trauma when they're there. And if they can focus on what's different and what's helpful and what people um, did that was helpful who were involved in that particular battle, then this may help them to see the the trauma site in a different way and think about and reflect on their own trauma site in a different way, which may help to reduce some of those memory symptoms that they've been having. And this sentiment was echoed by many who I spoke to from around the project. Hi, my name's uh, Paula Rogers and I'm a veteran out with Waterloo Uncovered for the very first time. First week, apprehensive, wasn't sure if I'd done the right thing, wasn't sure what was going to happen. Everyone's in the same boat, PTSD, anxiety, various disabilities. Here, you're not judged. It's just a sense of friends. Made so many friends and you're not judged. My name's Cathy Bannister. I work for the Military Veterans in the North West, which is under Pennine Care NHS Trust. I've come back this year because I saw real positive changes in some of the guys last year. For a lot of the guys, they're really isolated. I think when you leave the military, you can feel alone. You know, you've been part of a team, you've been part of a goal... You know, when you go back, you come out, you come into Civvy Street and sometimes can feel really alone. A lot of the time people suffer quite badly with social isolation, feeling that they're not understood. And I think the thing about this project that's so positive is it it is about transition, it is about bringing soldiers, serving veterans, archaeologists, civilians, all together under one project to show that we're not that different and that we can work together and I think it's a real positive step towards transition. My name's uh, Midge Spencer. I'm a uh, British Army veteran. I served for 25 years in the British Army as a combat medical technician. After my first year here, I was I mean it just gave me an interest back in life really. So talking to the academics while I were here, I I told them that I'd dropped out of my master's degree in I felt a failure as a result of that, which of course adds to the cycle of depression and, you know, negative thinking. And that they encouraged me to sort of try and re-engage with it. Several months later, I contacted my old supervisor to see if I could, you know, get back into it to just finish my dissertation because that's all I needed to do. And they've made it so that I can do that. So I'm working on that now. And I have to submit my dissertation by the end of January next year, 2019. And so what about the project? Do you think that, or have you taken a personal benefit from it? I've taken a personal benefit because it it gave me back an interest in myself, an interest in life in general, a sense of purpose it brought me back into engagement with fellow veterans, people who felt the same way that I did. I mean, before before this, I sat at home thinking, I'm the only one who feels this way. And of course, I'm not. But because I didn't go out and engage with others, you know, I, I, I didn't speak to anybody else with similar circumstances. This is my third time, but already, at, just at the beginning of week two, I can see changes in some of the guys from when they first arrived last weekend. I can already see them coming out of themselves, and it changed my life more than I can really explain. If you or someone you know is struggling, then mind.org.uk offers advice and support, or PTSD USA if you're listening from America. 
Thank you so much to everyone who's contributed to the programme. You've heard from Midge, Paul, Malcolm, Kathy, and Paula, Tony Pollard, Phil Harding, Hilary Harrison and Jennifer Wilde. And a huge thank you to the entire team at Waterloo Uncovered, especially Mark Evans and Mike Greenwood. The programme was put together by me, Georgia Mills. And the wonderful voice you've been hearing is University of Sheffield archaeologist Rebecca Hearn. That was her singing a traditional British song in the surviving chapel at Hugamon Farm. Lyrics by John Tams. Spain King George commands and we obey over the hills and far away Thank you Georgia and do join us for next week's programme when we'll be looking at the science of music The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce I'm Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye